Hi, it's Jeff, host of the podcast. Imagine a world where planning your books is as fun as writing them, where plotters plot in heroic harmony and pantsers organize without overwhelm. Here's the thing, that world exists. Plotters and pantsers alike love the visual outlining and story Bible software Plotter, now available both online and as a web app. Named the number one outlining app for productivity by Kindlepreneur, Plotter turns outlining and organizing your books into the creative process it's supposed to Visit plotter.com slash rw today. That's p-l-o-t-t-r dot com slash rw today. And experience the difference yourself. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Christine Wells, author of the new novel, One Woman's War, a novel of the real Miss Moneypenny. Best-selling writer Natasha Lester wrote about the novel, Forget James Bond, say hello to the real-life Miss Moneypenny, whose life was as replete with spycraft, adventure, and daring as any true heroes. Through Christine Wells' skillful storytelling, Patty Bennett, a.k.a. Miss Moneypenny, doesn't just shine, she dazzles like the star she was. Just like you'll be cheering for the heroine of One Woman's War, You'll be cheering Christine Wells for writing this brilliant book. Christine, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here. Absolutely. Well, if someone listening hasn't yet heard about your novel, One Woman's War, how would you describe the novel? Uh, I'd describe it as historical fiction meets spy thriller. And it's about Patty Bennett, as uh, Natasha's wonderful quote said, uh, she is about 19 when World War II breaks out and she's living in London and she comes to work for the intelligence arm of the naval in uh, the Navy, the British Royal Navy. Uh, so she works directly for Ian Fleming, who turned out to be the author of the James Bond novels. He, he wasn't to write them quite yet, mm-hmm. uh, but she is privy to a lot of information One piece was the planning of Operation Mincemeat, and she becomes directly involved in that operation later on. So uh, people might have seen the recent movie uh, of Operation Mincemeat, Mm -hmm. but if you haven't, it was uh, a ruse where the British wanted to mislead the Germans about where they were going to invade Europe in the south. Everybody knew it should be Sicily. That was the logical place. So they wanted to mislead the Germans and they planted a dead body off the coast of Spain in the waters off the coast of Spain, knowing that the Germans had spies in Spain and would try to get hold of the documents that were on that dead body. Uh, he was dressed up as a, a Royal Marine so uh, and he carried a briefcase full of sensitive information, one piece of which was saying that or hinting that the the invasion would be through Greece rather than Sicily. So uh, Paddy gets involved in this operation by pretending to be the dead man's girlfriend (laughs) and she has to go around London and and do all the things that they would have done together 
to sort of provide a legend for this this made up person. Uh, so that's that's the story. And and I'm curious, do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write One Woman's War? Uh, yes, I do. Well, I've always loved spies, and uh, I went to my first James Bond movie when I was seven. <laughs> <laughs> to the horror of my mother, uh, we my father was a barrister, and he was he was in the High Court. We live in Brisbane, and. He, uh, he was in Sydney, so we flew down to meet him after he, he did his court work. And so he'd been in court, you know, really high-pressure stuff all week and mum had had the children all week, so she said, here you go, and she went off shopping. Uh, so instead of taking us to a museum or something culturally, you know, improving, my dad <laughs> takes us to For Your Eyes Only. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I think I was hooked from from that time on. So uh, I, I've written a lot about female spies in World War II uh, from the French Resistance, which was Sisters of the Resistance. That was about Catherine Dior, the sister of the famous fashion designer. She was part of the resistance, and, and that story is just becoming widely known now. Uh, and I've written about agent provocateurs uh, in the Traitors Girl, so uh, and also uh, special operations executive spies uh, in the Juliet Code. So um, I've I've had a fascination for them, and and I've read a lot of biographies of Ian Fleming, and I came across an article that talked about all the women in his life, and Patty just seemed like such a character. You know, there's this story of her in her late 70s or something uh, foiling a mugging attempt by kicking the man in, in the place where it hurts and uh, he gave up and ran away <laughs> and she said it was all her years of ballet that uh, gave her the flexibility. But uh, so, so this was just a fabulous real person I could write about and and then to to find out that she was involved in Operation Mincemeat was just icing on the cake. That's great. And I'm curious, what kind of research did you do about World War II and Patty Bennett as you were preparing to write the novel? Oh, I I really like to immerse myself in in that era and in the in the milieu because this was uh, intelligence was a game for quite uh, wealthy. You know, it was a bit of a club mm -hmm. that they didn't let everybody into. So, you know, you've got the war war happening, but you also have this rather glamorous lifestyle laid over the top. Uh, and so I did a lot of research into all of the people who surrounded Fleming and, and that kind of era. Um, but also it's really interesting because... The National Archives uh, in Britain release a lot of old documents and files, and I came across uh, a fascinating file about a uh, an Austrian double agent called Friedel Gärtner, and uh, she worked for MI5 at the same time and became involved with this very dashing spy called Dushko pop off. So Friedel features heavily. She's a point of view character in the book as well. And her dilemma is does she does she do the right thing and and uh 
and do the right thing for the British side or, or does she try to save herself? So uh, she's got a real moral dilemma there. But she was just a fascinating woman. You know, uh, the the file on her is quite thick. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm curious, what was your, um, if we can go back for a moment, I, I wonder what was your initial fiction fiction writing journey that led you to writing and getting your first novel published? Well, as you may tell from my accent, I live in Australia mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, it was a little bit difficult here to get published because I like writing books set in uh, Europe and in Australia, obviously, the focus is on Australian history. Uh, so I pretty much looked overseas for markets. Uh, the UK was the obvious one for the books I was writing, but Actually, I found a market in in the US, uh, and I feel that being Australian gives me this sort of unique position that I can translate for the Americans the British sensibility. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. British books are a bit too British for the Americans, <laughs> but I sort of translate between the two. So uh, I started, I actually joined the Romance Writers of America uh, and the the same, we have a similar organisation here. And I was I was entering contests and uh, getting places in those contests. And where, when you become one of the finalists, the uh, the the finals usually judged by an acquiring editor. So I got this email very early in the morning, and I was up early and. It was from an editor in New York saying, uh, read your manuscript, loved it, want to buy it, e-me. <laughs> and it was very, very brief. But uh, being, well, I, I used to be a lawyer so I and I had had quite a lot of advice from other very experienced authors and I knew that you never jump at the first offer so I quickly, I had been querying agents, but I hadn't really got to the stage where I was receiving all the rejections yet. Right. And uh, so I quickly contacted everybody on my list and, uh, you know, lots of to and fro and staying up all night on phone calls with with uh, agents in New York. And I, I got an agent. Uh, she couriered the book, the manuscript around to all the different houses and I think that happened on the Friday and by Monday I had a deal with another, a different publisher. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, once you have that offer in hand, you can, you can, uh, you can get leverage, put it that way. But, uh, but I, I've always been a reader. You know, I was just such a bookworm as a child. We used to have these memberships to libraries, but you could only get out about three books at once. So I was a member of three different libraries <laughs> and I'd beg my parents to drive me around <laughs> to them all to, to get enough books for the week because, you know, when you're a bookworm, three books, that's nothing. Yeah, that's nothing. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. <laughs> well, well, what was your writing process like? And I wonder if it's similar from novel to novel when you were working on One Woman's War. Are you a writer who outlines the novel extensively before you start writing? Or did you just dive into the narrative? How does that work for you? Uh, I do a very silly thing. I do outline because I feel like I have to do that. I've trained myself to do that. I'm really more of an organic or pantser, as they as they say. Uh, but I make myself and I tell myself that it's all lies and I'm just, you know, I'll just throw it out. And I sort of do. I I write a detailed outline and then I bin it and just go with the story. And sometimes it deviates quite a bit from the outline, but I use Scrivener. So I always have my scene cards laid out and I find, especially with dual timelines, I mean, it's just so much easier. Sorry, if for people who don't know, Scrivener is a, a writing software that allows you to move scenes around very easily Right. So, uh, so for the timeline, that's imperative for me. Uh, but yes, by the end, I often find that it's very close to the outline, but I just feel constrained by outlines somehow. <laughs> I don't really like having them 
Sure. I'm curious, are you working on another novel now? Yes, I am. I am on deadline, in fact, for <laughs> a novel that's uh, – I, I seem to be picking up these rather bonkers storylines because uh, this one is about a girl who thinks that she is the love child of Edward VIII, who was the British king who uh, abdicated in 1936. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's based on – a little snippet I came across where Edward VIII had had a mistress who was French during World War One, and she was uh, acquitted of murdering her husband, her late later acquitted of murdering her husband, who was an Egyptian prince. And uh, she she had actually pretended that she was pregnant with that Egyptian prince's son in order to get her hands on the inheritance. And I thought, hmm, what if she pretended <laughs> she was <laughs> she was pregnant with Edward VIII's child? What what would have happened then? So that that's this story. That's great. Well, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories and novels? My advice is always to write about what you love and are passionate about knowing more about because then you'll never get bored. Uh, You know, there's always a time in the writing process where you think it's all a load of rubbish and you just want to throw it out and start again. That happens to everybody. (laughs) Uh, I think it does no matter what. But if you choose a subject that you're incredibly interested in, fascinated by, and you can convey that to other people through your writing, I think that's that's the most important thing. That's great. And I'm curious, what novels have you read recently that you enjoyed? Oh, you know, I'm absolutely addicted to Mick Heron's uh, Slow Horses series. <laughs> uh, it, it, I haven't seen the TV series yet, and I'm sure it's excellent, but I'm just a bit worried because I love those characters so much. Uh, Slow Horses is about the rejects from the MI5. That's the the domestic intelligence branch of Britain. Uh, that they get they don't get fired when they mess up. They get relegated to this dreadful place in Slough called Slough House, and they're nicknamed the Slow Horses. And they're completely dysfunctional but they end up saving the day. <laughs> so, I, 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 you know, it appeals to me. It's that blend of humour and, uh, and spy novel that I really enjoy. You're not the first author to mention those novels. So. Oh, really? Um, I, yeah. I haven't watched the series either. I haven't read the novels, but it's on my list. <laughs> oh, you must. And, and, you know, he has to describe Slough House However many times, he starts off with a description in every book and in every book he manages to come up with some fresh way of doing it. And, I mean, the the technique is just fantastic. I really admire his writing style as well. That's great. Well, where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your new novel, One Woman's War? Uh, My website is the best place to branch out into the social media. So that's christine-wells.com. I'm most active on Instagram and Facebook, but I also have a Twitter handle. So you can find all of those there. 
That's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Christine Wells, author of the new novel, One Woman's War, a novel of the real Miss Moneypenny. The novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Christine, thanks for doing this interview. Thanks so much for having me, Jess. Wonderful. The quayside at Pont Verdun was in uproar. Women draped in furs and jewels perspired heavily under the harsh summer sun as they comforted distressed children or struggled with suitcases crammed full of their most prized possessions. Men laden with yet more baggage clutched fat wads of useless French francs and tried in vain to secure a passage aboard one of the ships that were idling at the port. Babies wailed in their nurses' arms, urchins darted about on errands or lifted treasure from the pockets of wealthy refugees. Eight vessels of various nationalities, none of them British, were anchored at the mouth of the estuary. Word had spread that their respective captains refused to take anyone aboard at all, much less ferry them to safety across the English Channel. Each German bomb that fell an uncomfortably short distance along the coast whipped the crowd to a higher frenzy, and the Luftwaffe's machine guns strafed the countryside. Only the day before, the liner Lancastria had been sunk in the Bay of Biscay, killing thousands of British evacuees. Victoire Patricia Evelyn Bennett, Paddy to her friends, set her jaw and made a beeline for the one man present in the melee who seemed to know what he was doing. Dressed in the trim uniform of an officer of the British Royal Navy, he strode along, head bent, hands clasped behind his back, while a slighter man in a shabby brown suit practically ran to keep up with him, chattering all the way. Paddy weaved and squeezed herself through the crowd, judiciously using her elbows when she couldn't get through by polite means, accidentally banging shins with her portmanteau, once or twice treading hard on the instep of a gentleman who wouldn't budge. It was lucky her quarry was tall, because he was leaving her far behind in his wake. He had no trouble carving a path through his desperate countrymen, and soon reached the edge of the quay, where the crowd thickened and a wall guarded the drop to the jetty below. Paddy stopped short. The mob here was packed too tightly for her to get through. Before she could even get close enough to call out to him, the Navy officer had stood briefly at the narrow break in the wall where stone steps led down to the marina, given a few sharp orders, and nodded to the couple of burly, uniformed individuals who were holding back the tide of people that surged toward the steps. Then the officer disappeared, presumably descending to the waterside below. When next she spied him, he was aboard a speedboat, motoring off toward one of the waiting ships. Paddy's shoulders dropped. All right for some, she muttered. It seemed every British citizen still in France was leaving today. Her mother was right. She'd been a fool to stay in Paris. Darling, it's not safe. Your father says the Germans will march on the city any day now. You must come home at once. Mother, I've spent three years at the Sorbonne, swatting my little heart out. I'm only a couple of weeks away from getting my degree. Herr Hitler is not going to stop me. You won't need a degree in architecture when you're interned as an enemy alien, Edith replied tartly. I don't think you'll quite admire the prison camp period of design. The words came back to Paddy as she stood, helpless, amid the confusion. Judging by the number of Bentleys and Rolls Royces abandoned by the quayside, and the furs and jewels worn by the women, a great number of these evacuees were from the moneyed classes. Yet here, no one had any influence. As far as Paddy could see, that was principally because no one had actually taken charge of the British evacuation. The ships moored off the coast were private craft, and the French ones might not be friendly to Britain. 
After all, if the French signed an armistice with Germany, they would be regarded as the enemy. Everything was upside down. The French government had absconded to Vichy, so no help from that quarter. De Gaulle had flown off to London, and she was stuck here, nineteen, female, and alone in this heaving crowd of desperates, all through her own stubborn pride. The family she'd traveled with had taken one look at the crowds waiting to depart from this port and insisted on trying their luck farther south. For her part, Paddy saw more safety in numbers and declared she'd prefer to take her chances at Pont Verdun. Paddy had been adamant, and there was no time for protracted argument. Promising to send on the rest of her luggage, the Trevithics had deposited her at the quayside with one suitcase and wished her luck. Oh, please, please, somebody help me! A young woman no older than Paddy cried out to no one in particular. It's my mother, please, I don't know what to do. Judging by the girl's clipped accent, she belonged in Mayfair or Belgravia, or one of the home counties. Can I help? With a regretful glance toward the Navy man in the speedboat, who was now boarding one of the ships, Paddy fought her way over. What's the matter? Oh, thank you. The young woman grabbed Paddy's arm and dragged her through the crowd so forcefully that Paddy's small suitcase banged painfully against her thigh. Steady on. Sorry, only I'm so distracted. Mummy's awfully sensible as a rule, but it's the heat and the bombs and everything. She's terribly worked up, you see, having some sort of attack. The girl hustled Paddy through the crowd, achieving with a smile and a polite, excuse me, please, what Paddy had earlier accomplished by wielding of elbows and the sturdy heels of her leather oxfords. That was until a pimply youth blocked their way. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.